So here's the deal. Today is a weird one, and that's the only way I can describe it. Uh, we've been in this mode where we've been talking about Jesus and this whole theme of have you seen me? And uh, a f- couple weeks ago, I was starting to get this inkling that God wanted to do something different today. And uh, the best way I can say it is I resisted that. And he said, no, this is really what you're going to do. And so we're going to wrap this thing up. Uh, each week for the last month or so, we've taken a look at Jesus, right? And we're looking at him through the eyes of the people uh, who saw him face to face, right? People who were around him, people who experienced life with him. And if you were here, you'll remember uh, that first week, uh, Jesus, we kind of examined how Jesus revealed himself through healing, right? And so you had the, the, the idea that these others would kind of see what his ministry was about to unfold to be like and what he was about. And so you had the two blind men and then he opened their eyes. He physically healed them. But then we also had sort of this twist where he also opens the eyes of one of his closest disciples, right? Figuratively, Peter, who uh, all of a sudden Peter gets a better understanding of who Jesus was and who he was going to be and uh, what he came to do even. And so our challenge as a part of that was to remember that we are all people in need of Jesus, right? That's kind of what we talked about. And that revival, if we want revival, if we want God to change this planet, this earth, like all the things that we look around and we see that are, that we like, that's not right. I don't like that. That's not the way things should be. That all of that change starts within our hearts, right? He does it in us first and then it goes out from there. The second week we uh, talked about Jesus and his compassion, and how he would go in and he would minister to and love people uh, in the, right in the middle of their sin, right? And we had the two women uh, that really were guilty of the same sin. You had the woman at the well uh, who was guilty of, you know, the multiple husbands and adultery. And then you had the woman who was actually caught in the act of adultery. Two women whose lives were completely changed when they saw Jesus, right? They see him, uh, they see him as Messiah and they see him as savior. And in that moment, Jesus expanded uh, everyone's vision as to who would be included in this kingdom of God that was upon us, right? That was happening. And really all Jesus was doing was just affirming something that had been said way, way back in the very beginning uh, in the garden, but it was really cool. And, And so even more eyes were opened as to his purpose. And so then last week, of course, we celebrated resurrection Sunday. Let me just say something very quick here that I don't have my notes. Easter continues, right? Resurrection Sunday continues every day forward from that moment. You guys get that, right? Like that life that Jesus brings, we don't just celebrate that one time a year, but we continue to celebrate that all the time. Like it's a big deal. It should be a part of our lives. And that's part of what we're going to talk about today in some way. But we were reminded like by seeing Jesus that he continues to reveal himself even to those who are closest to him, his disciples. That's sort of like this big unveiling of these things. And it actually reminds me of something, and I think all of us, is that no matter how close we are to Jesus, no matter how long we've been following him, no matter how much we might know about him, there's always more to discover about Jesus. And there's always more work to be done in our lives too as a result of knowing him. And so uh, in this case, uh, the disciples, everything changed for them. They thought it was going one direction and then all of a sudden Jesus was murdered. 
things did not go the way that they expected with his kingdom. And then they'd been on this roller coaster ride already, you know, these high highs and these low lows. And then you have this thing where the brakes are slammed on and they think everything is done. It's all lost. We are done. We might as well go back to the things that we used to do because Jesus is gone and this whole thing's over. And then all of a sudden Jesus shows up in the room. You like, I don't know how he did that, if he phased through or whatever that was, but he shows up. And right in the midst of their doubts, he's there. And he's there to bring them peace. And the question was, how will we respond when we see Jesus in that way? When he asks us, who am I going to be in your life? That's a question I think that he asks us all the time. And it's a choice that we have to make every day. But that brings us to today and something I think is really special Uh, We're going to wrap up our series, Have You Seen Me? And we are going to wrap it up in the book of Revelation. (laughs) No, not like that. So if that statement like, oh, Pastor Bill just said Revelation, it's on. Like, I'm ready to do this. If that makes you, like, really happy and you're excited and salivating, well, good for you. Um, If you're still trying to figure out what just happened and how (laughs) this all uh, don't have a response maybe to what's going on right now, that's actually even better. So just a few things about Revelation before we jump in here. It's simultaneously one of the most studied and the least understood books uh, in the Bible. Uh, Modern readers like us find Revelation difficult. And I think it's because we fail to realize that this book is not addressed to necessarily this general broadcast readership throughout all time. It was written for a specific purpose for a specific group of people. Now, there's still things we can learn from it, and there's still things that I think are important for us to know, but it's not written for everyone living in any age. It was specifically addressed to these believers who the Apostle John was writing to, these believers that were under his care. As a matter of fact, uh, seven churches or assemblies, these communities that were in Asia Minor, which are all mentioned at the very beginning of the book are the people that he was writing to. And so the Bible, most of us know this, but just in case you don't, it's made up of many different types of literature. You have poetry, you have all these different things, right? Uh, But this is more of this library of divinely connected narratives or stories or uh, accounts of things that happened uh, versus a single book. And so you've got all this stuff mixed in there, but the book of Revelation belongs to this genre, And this genre is known as uh, apocalypse. It's a Jewish literature called apocalypse. So normally when we hear that word apocalypse, what do we think of? Anyone? End of the world, disaster. If you're Josh Hurlbert, you think of a Marvel comic books character. Um, But it's like uh, everything's ending. It's all over, global disaster. But the Greek word for apocalypse, if you look at it, it actually means uncovering or the revealing of something previously concealed. And so in the days of the apostles, apocalyptic literature was popular and it was actually well-read among believers. It was something that they were familiar with. John also wrote for the first century reader, people at that time versus us, which would be modern readers. But he also wrote for, and this is critical too, the first century Christ follower, people, men and women who were following Jesus. And all of their practices were rooted in this Jewish tradition, which makes this a very specific audience that John was writing these things to. And the symbolism, symbolism, it's hard word to say fast, the symbolism in this book is uniquely Jewish. And so that's why part of what we miss is because we miss that. It aligns with what they were experiencing. Modern readers find it difficult because we look uh, into this book for all of this information about the end of days. And it can certainly give us some clues and some glimpses at some of the things Uh, that we'll see in some ways. 
but the book of Revelation is not this sequential description of end times events, as at least that's how I grew up uh, learning. Uh, that's not what it's about. It's actually more than that. It's not a code either. It's not something that we have to decipher uh, to figure out what's going to happen. And what it is, is this, the book of Revelation uh, is not a book of chaos, okay? Because that's how it's been presented. It's actually a book of hope. And that's really what I want to talk about today. And you're like, well, what's that all about? A book of hope? How does that, how does that, it doesn't seem very hopeful. Some really weird, creepy things are happening in Revelation. And that's true. But Revelation does give us something. It gives us a glimpse of Jesus that I believe everyone needs to see because it's this picture of Jesus that helps us unlock the hope that we need in our lives and claim it for ourselves. And let me just tell you right now in this room, things that I know of and then probably a bunch that I don't, there's some hard, heavy stuff going on, really hard things in all of our lives. And so we have this book and this way to see Jesus that I think can bring hope in the midst of those things. Uh, apocalyptic literature, the purpose was to show mortals like us, right? Mortals, we are not uh, eternal people. We have a finite life. They were designed so that we could see as people that things on earth may seem hard. They may seem terribly unjust. In fact, we might see the righteous suffering and the wicked prospering, which we do all the time. But what this book was designed to do was to show us that, listen, it's not always going to be this way. A day is coming when God will settle the score and all people will learn that the way that we live this life matters in the next. The way that we love people, the way uh, that we walk out the faith that we have, uh, the way that we support our brothers and sisters, all of these things that may not seem like they matter at the time or times when we're struggling, we're like, man, I just want to give up on this thing. This seems a whole lot easier. God's saying to us, man, no, you need to understand that the way you live this life is going to matter in the next. The wicked, uh, they're going to answer for their ways. That's not our problem. And the righteous will be rewarded. The people that stay in there, the people that follow Jesus, that give them everything that they have, they're going to be the ones that are rewarded. And this is the central theme of every apocalypse. Not that kind of apocalypse. Okay, so powerful forces of evil oppose God. We know this, right? Scripture tells us that this is a spiritual thing. It's a spiritual battle. But the deal is this, God is sovereign and ultimately he will intervene to set the world right. We have to believe that. And in the final conclusion of things, he will defeat his enemies. That's one of the things that this promises because Jesus is our living hope and that is past, present, and future, guys, right? He's been there from the very beginning and he will go on forever. And that's a wonderful thing for us to consider. So, Revelation begins, I'm going to skip through the first few chapters, you can read them for yourself, but it begins by unpacking some of the trials and the tribulations that the churches in Asia Minor were enduring. Then we get to chapter four, and that's when it gets really cool, because some really magnificent things, these glimpses into the throne room of God that John, the apostle, is allowed to see. He's allowed to glimpse Jesus in this environment. And so again, over the past few weeks, we've been talking these reoccurring themes about Jesus and how often when people see him, their response is like astonishment or sometimes anger, right? He'll do something, he'll perform a miracle uh, and, and they have, they're confronted with this choice. They have to make a choice of who he is in that moment, right? They have to choose how they're going to respond to what they see. And so we have Revelation 4. John is there. He's looking into this doorway, this portal into the throne room of heaven. And then it describes this trumpet-like voice that's been speaking to him. And it calls him to enter. 
so that he can, and this is a quote, see what must happen after these things. He's instantly caught up in this vision of being before the throne of God. And we're going to pick it up in verse 2. And if you're just now coming in, we're in Revelation. It's weird for us too. Thanks for being here. So verse 2, it starts like this. John says, There before me in heaven stood a throne, and on the throne someone was sitting. The one sitting there gleamed like diamonds and rubies and a rainbow shining like emeralds encircled the throne. So already this is pretty cool, right? And then verse four, surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. And on the throne sat 24 elders dressed in white clothing and wearing gold crowns on their heads. From the throne came forth lightnings, voices, and thunderings. And before the throne were seven flaming torches, which are the sevenfold spirit of God. And in front of the throne was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. So here's what's interesting about this. Much of this imagery that we're reading is actually echoed or found in other parts of scripture. Uh, The the sounds specifically are very, very close to what's described when God gives forth his word on Mount Sinai to Moses and to his people. And then of course we have visions, Jeremiah and Isaiah and these other guys that saw things that are very, very similar to this. Daniel will be another example of that. So we pick this up again in verse six. So all that's happening. And then in the center around the throne were four living beings covered with eyes in front and behind. The first living being was like a lion. The second living being was like an ox. The third living being had a face that looked human. And the fourth living being was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living beings had six wings and was covered with eyes inside and out. And day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is Adonai, God of heaven's armies, the one who was, who is, and who is coming. How's that for a setup, right? This glimpse into the throne room of God and this area immediately surrounding it, we have this scene. We have these magnificent beasts. And if you think about like here on just planet Earth, like all of the weird creatures that God's created, and I see some of you are looking at me. That's not what I'm talking about. Like 80% of the ocean, scientists say, have yet to be explored. And every time they go deeper in the oceans, they find weirder and weirder creatures like really freaky, weird stuff. There's probably creatures on this planet that we don't even know about, right? And so you have all the weirdness of planet Earth that God made and scientists are still trying like, I don't even know why that thing has that and why that thing does this. Like they're still trying to figure it all out. All these weird creatures, but nothing holds a candle to these four creatures. These giant creatures, whatever they are, one with the face of a lion and one with an ox face and one with the human face and one with an eagle, each has six wings. They're covered in eyes, guys. Eyes, eyeballs. They're cruising and flying around the throne room and day and night, what do they do? They worship. And verse nine says, and whenever these living beings give glory, honor, and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, to the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, remember with the thrones that surround, they all fall down before the one sitting on the throne who lives forever and ever and worship him. They take off their crowns. Maybe those represent their achievements or their righteousness or their faithfulness. And they throw those 
in front of the throne. And in verse 11, they say this, you are worthy Adonai Eloheinu to have glory, honor, and power because you created all things. Yes, because of your will, they were created and came into being. And then all of a sudden, John notices something in this vision. He notices that the one sitting on the throne is holding this odd scroll in his hand. It's this double-sided scroll with these seven seals on it, and it's not able to be opened. And in his vision, this angel asks, who can open this thing? And there's this answer that comes, no one. No one in heaven or in earth can. And whatever the deal is there, John is upset by this deeply in his vision and he begins to weep. But one of the, sh- the elders in heaven consoles him saying, don't cry, look. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has won the right to open the scroll in its seven seals. It's like, wait a second, didn't the angel just say that it couldn't be opened? We have to remember there's a part of this thing that's a foretelling. We're getting a vision and John is witnessing how these things will unfold. And so someone will ultimately be able to open the scroll. It's like the best setup ever, right? And of course, that's who we're looking for uh, in this vision. And again, John witnesses some strange imagery, right? Because this lamb that appears to be slaughtered, whatever that looks like, representing Jesus, symbol right steps into the middle of the scene he takes the scroll from the hand of the father and here's what's cool that triggers this immediate response from all the living beings and the elders that are there mixing it up in this whole weird worship party right and all of them fall down in front of this lamb and worship with harps and gold bowls filled with incense which is reminiscent of uh, Jewish feasts and Rosh Hashanah and things like that And all these represent the prayers of the people. And then, here's what's really cool. Verse nine, they sing a new song. Their song changes. And it says, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. And then John says, And then I looked and I heard the sound around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Like, that's out of control. Think about, we don't even know. I mean, this all the way distant gal, we have no idea what's out there. And all of these creatures are singing, straight up singing. And they sing this with a loud voice. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Are you getting excited at all about this? You should be, right? Because I want to get invited to that party. I mean, we've got this Marvel movie that came out and everybody's freaking out trying to go see this thing, but it doesn't hold a candle to this, right? Like this is real, like that's CGI. But here's the thing. I keep going back to those giant creatures, right? Some of the... I don't know, the most powerful and fearsome creatures that God created for himself, he created specifically to cruise around his throne, like to be there with him. And he covers them in all of these eyeballs. And you're like, well, what is that about? And I just keep going back to this thought that there these creatures are, and you have all through the Bible people who could not look upon the Lord, right? 
Moses couldn't. All, all, you know, if you looked upon God, you would die because of his righteousness and his glory. You have these creatures covered in eyes that are able to take in the maximum glory of God. And no matter which way they fly, or if they're cruising or doing barrel rolls, it doesn't matter because they have eyes all over them. And they are taking in this maximum glory of God and all they do day in, day out is look upon the Lord. And their response this whole time is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Worthy are you, Lord, to receive glory, honor, and power. We have to stop and think about that for just a second because so often and I'll speak for myself, my worship can become focused on me. It can. How I think, how I feel, what I prefer, what I like, what I want, how I'm doing. And listen, I think it's perfectly fine for us to have personal expressions in worship, you know that is a big part of, of what we sing. And I think that, that the human part of worship is very, very important. But I think we also have to remember, guys, right here in scripture, we see these creatures and what they're responding to is God's holiness, his worthiness. And it, this is what comes out of them. And then they see Jesus and something changes. Their song changes. And then the elders and everybody, the whole band joins in, right? All of heaven. And they sing. And here's what they're singing about. In case you missed it, they proclaim his triumph. Jesus' triumph over death. They sing of the salvation that he brings to all people. And they inaugurate God's coming kingdom. They declare that the people ransomed by Jesus, they are now kings and queens and they are priests. That's you and me. Who will rule with him. Their worship has nothing to do with how they feel, although I would guess being in that environment would certainly make you feel something. Guys, they worship him because he's worthy. Worthy to receive power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory and praise and then finally in Revelation 5 13 this is what happens and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the sea and on the sea under the sea right like all those creatures Sebastian's down there and he's singing too like every one of them no matter what is down there they're singing to God but check this out under the earth too do you see that what worms what are we talking about here this is blowing my mind. So every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and on the sea, everything in them singing, saying to the one who sits on the throne and to the lamb belong praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever, right? I don't know what worms sound like. And then after all that, we've got our big giant four, like these six winged beings, these freaky terrifying things. And the four living beings said, Amen! Which means so be it, or yes! And then the elders yet again fell down and worshipped. Every creature, guys, every inhabitant of the realm where Adonai sits on his throne, every creature in our space down here, 
terra firma, right? And then whatever exists out beyond the stars, because there may be creatures, we don't know. Everything, heaven and earth, it's all singing, it's all worshiping God, the Father, and of course, his son, Jesus. And in this moment, Jesus is revealed as the victorious redeemer, worthy of honor and power and glory. He's our living hope. And so when we see him in this way, guys, and I hope that you do, our response should be the same as every other creature. Our response is worship. Listen, I know, again, in this room, hard things are happening. But I also know that the whole purpose of this book is to show hope in the midst of some of the worst things imaginable, the things that this early church was going through. Things that we don't have to deal with, at least in this country. A day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But I would suggest that you not wait till that day. And listen, I don't think that day is gonna be people being forced to do that either because I think sometimes we get this vision that it's gonna be, okay, well, this moment, everybody's gonna be forced to do this because God is God, right? No, I think they're gonna see his worthiness and it's going to be an involuntary response. I think everybody's gonna be like, whoa, how did I miss this? If they have a response. Jesus steps into view it's the only one worthy because he did what no other could do. His life, his death, his resurrection. Those things bought our freedom and gave us access to this throne room of God, right? That's the, the entrance fee. That's the portal that John looks through. That's the invitation that the angel gives him to come in. It's all because of Jesus. So Jesus asks us today, have you seen me? Yeah, love on display, absolutely. Absolutely. A righteous redeemer who made a way for you to come to the Father. How often do we think about that? How about a living hope in the midst of whatever you've got going on? Guys, God doesn't call us to keep it together. It's okay. Before his feet. This is where we need to be. So today, we're going to do it. That's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to take some time, and we're just going to worship. And I would just encourage you that if you're not like a person, like maybe your natural tendency is to be reserved in worship, or you feel like you need to hold it together. I'm not suggesting that you stir up some kind of emotion, but what I am suggesting is that we serve a God who's worthy, a God who loves us, a God who gave everything for us. And so what I'm going to suggest today is that we respond to that. Father God, I thank you for all the precious people. this room 
and the others of our community that are with us today, God. so easily allowed to happen because of this world and the difficulty navigating it and living in it. I just pray, God, that we as your people always have soft, pliable hearts, people that are looking to love others, people that are looking to step into situations and be you. But God, those things only happen when we look at your son and he transforms us. Those are not natural ways for us to behave. would just be the beginning of us looking at Jesus. And Jesus, we love you. We thank you so much for all that you gave us and all that you continue to give us in our lives. And we pray that the worship of our lives would be honor and glory to you until that day when we will see you face to face. And what an amazing day that will be. creatures that surround your throne and say, Amen.